This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Right now it is time for our talking point. And this morning, well, it's inspired by the recent massive data breach of the private information of millions of people, of uh, millions of Optus customers, in fact, uh, has once again focused attention on what happens to that information and how it might end up in the hands of criminals. And it might end up on what is known as the dark web. But what is the dark web? Who accesses it? How much like the regular internet is it? And what can be done to control it? What happens with your data if it ends up on the dark web? And what can Australians do to protect themselves against the threats caused by this massive data breach? But apart from stolen information, the dark web is also a place where weapons, drugs, illegal pornography are traded, often using cryptocurrencies rather than traditional cash or credit cards. But although the dark web is mostly associated with illegal activities, it's also used by the intelligence community, whistleblowers, members of the media and ordinary citizens whose communication may be monitored or restricted by the government their own governments, places like China and Russia, I suppose. This morning, our talking point is uh, a look at what is considered the Internet's lurid underbelly, the dark web. Our guest is Dr. Geoffrey Foster, Associate Professor in Cyber Security Studies at Macquarie University's Department of Security Studies and Criminology, which is a world leader in this field. Professor, a very good morning. Welcome to Overnights. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me. We got a text earlier from Les in Adelaide who wanted to say that, well, he saw on TV that they were searching for, you know, details of 10,000 people that that had lost their information or had their information stolen in this Optus hack. Uh, And it was on something called the ClearNet. I wonder if you could explain the differences or the similarities between the ClearNet and the dark web. Sure. Well, there's there's three levels, actually. Uh, so the clear net is what we're used to for the internet. It's the things you can find on Google. It's essentially, if you can Google search something, it's in the clear net. Um, the deep web gets a bit more depth to it. The things you can't find on Google that are still there on the internet. <clears throat> so when you log into your email account online, there's a lot of information within your emails, but I can't search for your email content through Google. That's kind of that that deep web, that darker underbelly of the internet that can't really be seen by by standard search engines because it's hidden behind databases and logins and everything else. But that's the majority of the internet exists in there. As you get further down, you get into what we call the dark web. And the dark web runs on its own infrastructure, its own kind of networking setup that was built by the U.S. government uh, decades ago. And that needs special browsers to access to, to access certain sites to be able to um, find anything that we call being on the dark web. We'll, we'll get into what that really means in a minute. Uh, but it requires special software. It's not something that you can just pop into on any web browser. Uh, hidden services websites on the dark web have their own uh, domain extensions called .onions. So like we type .com for a website. If you're on the dark web, you type .onion, and it becomes its own kind of URL. But what's really interesting on it is it's completely encrypted. You, you can't be seen what you're, generally speaking, you can't be seen what you're doing, although that's not a foolproof kind of scenario. There's ways of tracking people. Um, 
but it's a completely hidden service. And and what it does is it's called Tor or the Onion Router, uh, T-O-R. And essentially what it does is encrypts your traffic in a way that it runs through all these different routers, all these different services that are people are running for free to create the, the, the dark web. Uh, and each layer unwraps another layer of encryptions. When you send your information to a website, uh, you wrap it up in lots of layers of encryption so that nobody really knows along this net network connections who's contacting who because it's all encrypted information. They just unwrap their next level of encryption and pass the information along, which is what helps kind of make it hidden. Right. So how did the experiment escape from the lab, as it were? How, if it was developed by the U.S. government, how did other people get involved? Well, they, they needed to. So they created a Tor Project, uh, which is an organization that actually manages the, the dark web. And again, this was made by the government so that spies can communicate was kind of the original intention for it. Um, every country has signals intelligence. We've got the um, ASD, Australian Signals Intelligence, here in the U.S. You've got the NSA, which is their signals detection, and that's really used to catch spies communicating. And so the U.S. government made this in order to allow spies to communicate without getting caught. But they, in order to do that, you needed to create an entire large network of people with lots of people using it, because otherwise if there's only the spies using it, it becomes pretty obvious that that's a spy because it's being used. Uh, so it allows them a bit of anonymity by allowing everybody onto the dark web uh, and then encrypting all the information so that if I'm accessing a, a website to communicate with um, a, a CIA operative that's that's known by a country, they can't be tracked back to me, right? So yeah. And that's kind of the intention of, of, of why sure. it was put. But it's it didn't escape. It was always built for the use right. of being available to the world. We do all the dark web now. Um, I don't think it was called the dark web. It was always called, called Tor Project. It wasn't until it started getting used for really malicious purposes right. that it picked up the name the dark web. So if I have a computer here in front of me, which I do, or I've got a laptop at home or whatever, Mm -hmm. Do I need something special to get onto the dark web? Let's call it the dark web. Or can I use what I've got here, but I'll need some special way of getting on it? Or can I just use yeah. an ordinary standard uh, computer? Any ordinary standard computer, even your cell phone can connect to it. You just need a special web browser. So you okay. wouldn't use... So how do you get that web browser then? And this is the tour that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. so uh, torproject.org. You can download it for your your website uh, uh it's called tor browser uh onion browser if you're on an iphone i can't remember the name of the one if you're on a on an android phone it's another browser you use on there but there are lots of those are the main browsers there are other ones that can access it now brave browser which is generally a great web browser for privacy uh in general uh now offers the ability to turn it on and connect it to the dark web although i wouldn't necessarily especially if you're on a a desktop, I wouldn't use anything except for the official web browser off of Tor Project. So is anyone monitoring who is connecting up with the torproject.net, I think you said it was. Does anyone monitor that so that they know who's then delving, diving into the dark web? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh, yes, your ISP can kind of tell that you've connected to a what we call an entry node. So when you connect to the dark web, what you're really doing is taking your connection and, and kind of setting up multiple Tor routers that you connect to. 
So you connect to one at first, we call that your entry node. Uh, and that's got, you know, your, we take a step back. When you, when you go to a website, what you're doing is you're sending a packet of information to that website, which says, hi, I'm Jeff. I'm trying to connect to um, this website.com. And you send that up and you send it to your ISP and they can read, this is from Jeff. They're connecting to this website.com. Sends it off to the next server. Uh, it says, Jeff is looking for this website.com until it gets all the way to that website, which finally tells it to connect to me. Uh, and so it becomes very clear and very obvious as a result of that. What the tour does instead is you set up essentially three other routers you're gonna connect to. And it takes that packet that says, I'm Jeff, I'm looking for this website.com and wraps it up in three layers of encryption. So it encrypts right. it once and then encrypts that and then encrypts that again and sends it to three web servers, which all decrypt as it goes. So by the time you get to that third web server, it has decrypted all the information and it knows I need to get to this website.com, but it has absolutely no idea who I am because all it knows is the last computer that sent it the information. So that's what helps to keep it kind of anonymous. <clears throat> All right, so I've got this up now on my screen here, Tor mm -hmm. Project. Uh, browse privately, explore freely, it says. Defend yourself against tracking and surveillance. Circumvent censorship. Uh, you can block trackers, defend against surveillance, resist fingerprinting, multi-layered encryption, browse freely. Is it really for people who aren't looking at the dark web, but just looking at the, you know, that, that clear net or that sort of the top layer of the web, the open web, is it just mm -hmm. does it just work as any other kind of uh, you know browser or you know, search engine? Well, that's where that's where people get confused with what the dark web is. The dark web is really that kind of onion routing, that kind of multi-layer encryption routing, and I can go to any website as a result of doing so. Uh, but as because of the fact that I'm going through the through the dark web, it has all my information encrypted and it never never sends out any information that I'm me looking for this website. So you can absolutely access the clear web on it, and it's used frequently for that. The second layer of what we what we what most people think of as the dark web is that that can work in reverse as well. So what's called a hidden service or a dark web website, those dot onion domain names, they do the exact same thing in reverse. So while you're sending your information forward looking for the website and encrypting it in multiple layers of encryption. They're doing the exact same thing in the opposite direction. And your data packets, your information meets at a rendezvous point. So another router somewhere out there that's on the, on the Tor network that has three layers of encryption getting it to it from me and three layers of encryption getting to it from the from this dark website, this .onion domain name, so that at no point do I know where that web server is. And it doesn't know where I am. And that rendezvous point just knows some encrypted information. And so there's this kind of loss of communication about who's who and who's where, and yet we can communicate. So those are those two kind of ways of looking at the dark web. One is, it's just the routing aspect that allows you to stay anonymous on the regular internet. But also there's these hidden services that can do the same thing in reverse, okay. making it a completely hidden Nobody has any idea who's who or what's going on out there. Okay, so just talking about, say, this Optus uh, breach, if mm -hmm. I were to use this Tor project as my search engine or web browser um, and, you know, searched Optus and put information uh, in what that they wanted, can somebody else then find that? Or you know, why doesn't uh, a company like Optus use this sort of uh, stuff? 
Right. Well, I mean, people people certainly will out of Optus. They'll have their analysts that, that scour the dark web looking for information. Uh, but there's no search engine. You, you can't search anything on here because these websites are all decentralized. And oh. so there's no they're all 56 length character domain names. So unless are, you know like what you're looking for, you can't get onto yeah. this and search uh, by cheap, uh, you know, AK-47s. It won't come up. Nope. You need to know what no, that website is. Yeah, and it's a, and they're not an easy. It's not like a you know, it's it's not like buydrugs.com or anything like that. It's <laughs> it's uh it's a, it's actually the URL itself is a decryption key. It's a fifty six character long key itself, which is why it's um right. so you can't just it's not you can't just type in stuff and see what you find. Yeah. So uh, then, um, how do you find even find out what that is? I presume they are shared amongst users. That's one way. Uh, of uh, finding out what it is, but how do you even find out what it is in the first place? Yeah, so uh, I mean, there's there's there there are still URLs. You just uh, find them on the clear net uh, and communicate there to find the start starting points. But there's a lot of legitimate websites on the dark web, right? The New York Times has its website on the dark net. It has a dot onion domain for it. Uh, so does Gmail and Facebook and Twitter and everything else. There's so what's the advantage of-, of them being on the dark web as well? Yeah, anonymity. So if you're the New York Times and you want whistleblowers or people within um, dictatorship countries to be able to communicate to you securely, right. you, you operate a darknet site and then they can do so. Because there's, like I said, there's legitimate reasons for it. In a Western country, we, we use it generally, you see it most often used for drugs and, and guns and everything else that's being illegal and sold there. But in the third world, this is a critical uh, step to security, be able to communicate uh, with people without necessarily being caught by your own government. Now, given that people are going to have to have their own advice, speaking generally, do you think, say, the Tor Project or other ones uh, similar uh, of those sorts of uh, browsers, are they the sorts of things that people ought to be using in their everyday searching online uh, to make them safer? No, it's not something you'd want to use on a, on, a, on a daily basis. The biggest issue, I mean, it's it's good, keeps it safe, uh, but it's actually a lot slower as a result because uh, when I communicate to a website, I'm communicating directly to that website after I connect to it. But here I've got to go through three layers of encryption and decryption through servers that can be anywhere in the world. So you've got a whole bunch of extra hops. It makes it go really slow as a result. So you wouldn't necessarily just do your everyday browsing on there and get quite infuriating pretty quickly. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Grayman says, why can't they encrypt our normal emails so they can't be read when they're sent through the internet? <laughs> well, they, they are. They, your, your email is, is encrypted. And most traffic, uh, so when you're sending an email or receiving emails, those are encrypted. When you go to a website, as long as you're going to an HTTPS website and not just HTTP, it's already encrypted information. But not everything is encrypted. The information you're sending to in the website is, but the fact that you're connecting to that website in the first place can be tracked by everybody, starting with your ISP, who has to send those requests in the first place. They can also be, have information that's injected inside of it and a variety of other, other issues that come up. So most of the content is encrypted, but you going there in the first place is not. And if a government or an ISP wants to track your behaviors, uh, and see that you're going to, you know, CIA.gov, uh, it can be pretty sure that you're, you know, a spy or something along those lines. Interesting. I mean, people think that um, 
uh, things like WhatsApp, because they're encrypted, can't be read. But in fact, they can. I mean, I know from personal experience, not that I was sending or receiving them, but I knew about it, that uh, WhatsApp messages that revealed a crime, the police were able to crack that. Uh, How do they do that? I mean, if people are sending messages via those apps because they think they're encrypted and they can't be read, that they are mistaken, aren't they? So, well, yes, yes, no. I don't know how they would have encrypted that. WhatsApp is generally... Um, and and encrypted, but the problem is that people don't understand the distinction. Not everything on WhatsApp is going to be end to end encrypted. Uh, there are things that allow the information to leak out. You can send URLs uh, or images that that come off of another URL that suddenly lose that end to end encryption aspect because it's pulling information from another website. Uh, the government uh, don't have any confirmation yet that they are, but whether or not the government can force WhatsApp to keep an encryption key or create an encryption key for a specific individual, but they'd have to do that in advance. Uh, we don't know for sure if they're doing that yet, but that, that comes off of the regulation that came out a couple of years ago here in Australia to force companies uh, to give back back entries into encrypted information. Mm-hmm. It's a it's problematic for a variety of reasons, including the fact that just because the government's if the government can do it, anyone can do it, right? That's yeah breaks encryption, you break encryption for everybody, not just for one person. Okay. Now, Terry from Launceston has called in, and we've got a text which I think is similar as well. Terry, good morning. Yeah, good uh, I'm not really a technical person. I don't even do apps on my phone or anything. Uh, but I'm wondering about the VPN. Is that uh, a lot of commercial providers, ISPs or whatever, uh, offer a VPN service for a identity and you can access the internet for anywhere. Yeah. Is is that basically using the dark web or the deep web? Ooh, okay. No, no, it's a, it's a completely separate service, but it is kind of similar in, in the fact that you're connecting through another web server through an encrypted address. Uh, so you, with, with the VPN, you're, you're instead of you browsing to a website, you're securely connecting to another server somewhere else in the world and that server is connecting to the website so it's broadcasting instead it's still occurring over the clear net though and it's not going through the the onion routing service uh it has similarities especially in the way that i've described it here of just being an encrypted packets being sent but it is something a bit different and it's very clear to your isp that you're connecting to a vpn and what vpn it is you're connecting to and VPNs do keep records, uh, even the ones that tell you that they don't keep records, they still keep some records. So it's uh, VPNs are a good step to add security and anonymity. I use one myself frequently whenever I, I just want anonymity on what I'm doing, uh, but it's it's nowhere near as secure as the dark web or a Tor connection to the clear web. Terry, thanks very much for that. Okay, thanks. Oh, thank you. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Foster from Macquarie University is our guest. Now, another text that says, does the using a VPN provide the same anonymity? So you're saying not yeah. really. Not really the same level of anonymity. It's, it's, it's pretty decent anonymity. If what you're worried about is some random criminal tracking you down and figuring out who you are based on what you do, yep. it's pretty good security, so long as you're using a well-known well-respected VPN service. Okay. If your concern is the government, uh, it's just not very good security. Okay, they Bru- have access to right. things that people other people don't. Please text us oh four six seven nine double two seven zero two. Bruce says, "Would you be less vulnerable to viruses or malware if you're using a Tor browser?" 
Yes. So it sort of. So if you're using the Tor project and, and one of the perks on it is that when it comes in, it has all the extra features like JavaScript turned off by default. So I always recommend Tor project browser. Um, it's a web browser and it's, it's connecting to the internet just like any other one. Uh, and, and in fact, these hidden services run on web servers just like any other one. So you can turn the settings onto the browser and just look like just any other browser and it doesn't protect you in any way from malware or anything else. Okay. Uh, which is why it's important to make sure you go to trusted websites even when you're on the, on the dark web. But with Tor browser, the browser itself has all those extra features turned off to keep you more secure. So yes and no, it keeps you more secure, but only because the browser starts you off more secure. That makes a bit of sense. Okay. You can you can change the settings to make it just as insecure as anything else. All right. Susan in Canberra says, who's maintaining the dark web? It seems it would take a lot of support. Who's maintaining it? It does. It takes it, it takes a whole lot of support. It's about 10,000 servers on a daily basis that are up running the dark web. Um, and, and these are, you know, these are big rack servers uh, and they're 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 connected to very fast broadnet internet connections uh, through data centers, through companies. They're, it's a volunteer network though. So um, there'll be a lot of companies that run it, a lot of governments run it. Um, some individuals might run it who have a really, who just happen to have an extra uh, rack server laying around, which is um, surprisingly common amongst IT professionals, as weird as it sounds. But there's about 10,000 of them running. It's, it's a completely volunteer network. Hmm. It's not illegal, is it? The dark web. The many no. things on it are illegal. The same as on, I presume, the uh, the usual internet. But it's not illegal, mm -hmm. as you say. It was created for a perfectly good reason. Yeah, it's it's absolutely one hundred percent legal. You can connect to it anytime you want. Uh, there is a. It's one of those things where it can be completely legal, and yet because of that high level of anonymity, uh, it gets used for a lot of illegal activity, and so. If you're going to a hidden service, those .onion domain names, those ones tend to hide a lot of illegal content, such as the forum used by the Optus hacker. Yeah. Uh, just keeps it anonymous that way. And if you get anonymous, you, you get illegal activity, unfortunately. Can you make your own website then? Can you create your own website with that .onion domain name? Yeah, yeah you certainly can. Uh, in fact, this is... So there's about... There's about 700,000 websites on the dark net that you can see uh, and addresses. And, and Tor Project has and knows when, it, when you create a Tor Project has to get registered initially so they know what exists. Um, they don't know the addresses, but they know when they exist. And anybody can build it. Anybody can run it on their own computer at home and build their own dark net website. And so that's why there's so many of them out there. It's just a, a special yeah. piece of software. It's, it's I mean, it's Apache, the same kind of infrastructure a regular website runs off of. Uh, it's just got some extra pieces added on so that it connects with that Tor connection of three encrypted layers going out to a rendezvous point. So does Tor uh, have so an office in Silicon Valley, same as you know Microsoft or Google or, or Twitter or anything like that? Are they? I don't know where they're located. Uh, That'd be about right, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, they don't want to be found, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I'm sure that they've got a building somewhere of some kind of support, but uh, oh, here we go. Winchester, New Hampshire. Ooh. 
Okay, not exactly. Well, this is the funny thing. New Hampshire is one of those states also that um, a lot of, for tax reasons, a lot of companies register themselves without being okay. there. So that's right, that might just be their business address. Okay. we got George. Good morning, George. Uh, good day there, Rod, and good day there, Professor Foster. Um, yeah, I think if you want to find that place in New Hampshire, it's probably a little you know, dark warehouse that has lots of 24-hour pizza deliveries and uh, uses a huge <laughs> amount of power. But um, anyhow, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you've asked, answered a lot of my questions from previous callers, but uh, in terms of, I've heard about quantum, well, I've looked at uh, quantum cryptography and as being uh, uh, the next generation of possibly uh, keeping your information private uh, in, in the sense that uh, if, uh, if there's any interruption to the network by you know an outside uh, person trying to snoop into your communications, it'll... Uh, Basically, uh, you know, be be uh, uh, noticed, uh, and uh, you won't be able to beat the uh, the, the, the encryption in any way uh, because, uh, as I understand, uh, there's yeah. a sort of intervened. Okay. Uh, right. So, I just wonder if you could uh, comment on uh, where you, you see that, and maybe making the dark web as such, you know, the current Tor network, uh, obsolete in that sense. All right. Thanks, George. Okay. Just explain what George was on about, Jeffrey. Sure. So it's a good question. Uh, so quantum computing, this new step forward in how computing is going to be done using uh, quantum physics instead of a standard uh, chip processor uh, is going to be revolutionary when it occurs. And there's lots of companies working on this, including uh, machines by Google and IBM that are that are getting close to being able to do some, they can do some interesting things with quantum computing now, but they're getting close to being making this really mainstream. Uh and, and it's it's a it is a step forward in processing power, un, unlike anything else. Once it comes out, and as a result, they can break end to end encryption. So the encryption keys we use to make things encrypted, uh, I mean, we can kind of we can break it now, uh, but you have to break an individual packet, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And and there's certain ones that you just won't ever have the computing power to ever break. Uh, with quantum computer, they can pretty much break everything that we have currently. And there's this fear that once quantum computing comes around, it becomes mainstream, that all that information that's ever been sent using encryption can suddenly be decrypted. Because if anyone's saving encrypted information, they can save it and wait until quantum computing comes around. Uh, that's that's a fear. That's a, that is a real fear of what can occur on there. And I think it is inevitable one day. But one day could be very far off. It could be very close. We have absolutely no idea. Mm. Who's working but, on it? Oh, so many, every university on the world is working oh, okay. in quantum computing in some sense. But what's, they're also working on new quantum cryptography methods, methods of encryption that can't be broken by quantum oh. computing. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so there'll just be a new step up. It'll be, um, I mean, the dark web as it exists now might become problematic once quantum computing is, is yeah. uh, all over the place, but it'll just it'll it'll just reshape and change its its uh, encryption methods. Okay, it's so already changed it once. So yeah, in that regard, is it? It's a, I suppose a case of you know, as the area of light grows, so does the area of darkness. That in some ways there are ways of monitoring. Uh, if you know these websites on the dark web, then I'm sure people are looking for them, whether they be law enforcement or CIA, mm -hmm. things like that. They're able to monitor perhaps how much traffic there is on them or what's been posted on some of these sites or that sort of thing, what's for sale as well. But yeah. if we go beyond that, 
then they're not going to be able to do that at all. So, you know, developing this, this new technology is, in fact, you know, going to have a, a, a terrible side effect. Yeah, well, uh, no, they'll still be able to do a lot of that aspects. Um, I mean, if the dark web is, is run on anonymity, so if you're running it anonymous, you've got to allow anybody to connect to it, uh, including law enforcement who can see what's there. But law enforcement today, with some exceptions, can't see the amount of traffic going to it in terms of a network traffic, but they can hop into any form and read it just like anybody else can, as long as they've got access to it. Sometimes it's behind passwords, but you know, law enforcement has lots of methods of getting access to things and tricking people into believing they're criminals when they're not. So they can get in now, they'll be able to get in in, in the future as well in that way. Uh, it's the decryption of information, like Australia's laws that we passed a couple of years ago to allow them backdoors to encryption. Yes. That will certainly disappear if we get quantum encryption. Yes, okay. Uh, Rosa wants to know, is it true that the reason Optus and other big corporations want to hang on to our personal data is so that they can sell it? Uh, yeah. Some. <laughs> certainly not your identifying information. They can't sell that off. That's illegal. Um they can't share it with third parties until recently when it was just a couple of days ago made legal to give to banks in order to protect their customers. Uh, but yeah, some of that, some of that information, that metadata in particular is valuable. Uh, it has value. Companies don't necessarily have to sell it. They can just use it. Google, for instance, um, makes it very clear that they never sell data. And yet we all know that they're using those data to sell us stuff. There's mm. uh, you can, you can use it to give, meta information about people without actually selling off the data yeah so i don't want to say optus is selling data i don't think optus is selling data they're not making okay. money off of it in that sense but they're certainly using it uh in order to market to you now and in the future to bring you back as a customer get you more services so they have there's reasons for those data it's hard to convince companies to get rid of data that they don't have to get rid of yes because even if it's not valuable now or it might be valuable in the future uh, and so they're not going to get rid of it until we have regulation that says companies have to have, if they don't need the data now, they have to delete the data. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have any of that regulation. Um, that's what uh, though people are suggesting we should have and working towards it, hopefully. Chris on the mm -hmm. Sunshine Coast says, uh, what does the professor think of new ideas of telcos sharing information with financial institutions? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think as a, as a one-off in this particular case, because it affected such a large proportion of the population here, um, it's always a little bit odd allowing companies to communicate personal information between each other. Okay. Uh, so long as I haven't seen the regulation that they got passed exactly, if this is a one-off kind of scenario in order to protect people's bank accounts, because there's a lot of people who aren't acting out as a result of this leak, whose information and documents did leak that aren't just can't be bothered to update yeah, them. Sure. And they don't understand the severity of it. So giving that information to banks to protect as many as possible, I think is a, as a one-off government oversight aspect is probably a good thing. So long as it's limited to this one case, anytime it needs to happen in the future, it has government oversight again. Okay. Speaking of governments, Julian Perth says, in countries where there's a lot of government surveillance uh, of what their population is doing online, if a person was using Tor, would that be known? Therefore, the user would be targeted by such a government. Yes, uh, it absolutely would. Um, but not... But there's still ways to hide even the fact that you're connecting to Tor because you can run a VPN and then the Tor browser. 
So that way the VPN is the one connecting to the dark net and not okay. you directly. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of little extra, extra steps you can take to keep secure against the nation state kind of aspect. But even then you can still see a VPN. This is part of why um, in China, VPN usage is illegal. You're not actually legally allowed to use a VPN. Uh, and they can tell if you're using a VPN because that's crystal clear and obvious. Mm, okay. Um, what is for sale on the dark web? We've talked about, you know, the identities and, and uh, personal information. That's one thing. Mm. And I presume that's for identity fraud mostly or for hacking people's credit cards, using the information that credit card companies ask for you, yeah. uh, ask of you uh, if you if you need information or try to set up a card or use it or whatever. Uh, there's mm -hmm. you know arms, there's pornography, child pornography in particular we've heard about. What else is out there that is for sale perhaps illegally? Yeah, just about anything you can sell will be, be online. Um, Drugs. Probably the scariest part is the uh, amount of, uh, well, quite frankly, human trafficking and slavery that mm -hmm. occurs across the dark web. Because we, we know that human trafficking is still prolific, even in the 21st century. Uh, and the dark web is where a lot of it, it goes. Uh, and the, the ability to buy and sell people runs across the dark web. Um, it's not an, it's not as easy to catch for them because absolutely law enforcement is very quick to do everything they can to track those kind of scenarios down. But it's uh, anything that can be sold gets sold onto the dark web. Uh, and anything that can be listed as well. There's uh, stories of dark web sites that exist with uh, a cannibal cookbook on a website somewhere. And uh, to serve man, was that the things. name of the shop? Uh, the, the, <laughs> the sh it should the be. Sh I don't think they were. I don't think they were that quite that clever, unfortunately. Um. <laughs> okay, so has cryptocurrency made this much easier than it was before? Yeah. Uh, quite a bit. Um, I mean, especially the the, uh, the the drug market sites, anything where you can do it through postage and uh, don't necessarily need to see anybody face to face. Uh, cryptocurrency helps quite a bit, although it still existed before that through a variety of other other methods, such as buying, giving out um, gift card numbers, uh, Visa gift card kind of things. So it still existed. Cryptocurrency just makes it a whole lot easier because you don't have to worry about banks and the identifying information associated with banks. Yeah. What about black hats? What are black hats and why are there ads for them on the dark web? <laughs> yeah. So black hat is a hacker, a criminal hacker. Uh, we refer to them as the black hat versus the white hat, who is the uh, ethical hacker who might work for a company. Um, yeah. So if you need to, if you want to break into somebody's accounts uh, steal their money, stalk somebody, you can hire a black hat hacker who will do so on the dark web. Some of these are, uh, it's, the difficulty on these is I wouldn't ever recommend someone just pop in and, and try to do that for a variety of reasons. One, it's illegal. Second is uh, there's also a lot of police officers who stay, pose as being black hat hackers for sale on the dark web. Um, and you can easily walk into one of those traps. Uh, but a lot of it will also just be people who have no idea what they're doing. You'll pay them the money, and then you'll never see or hear from them again. They'll just take the money and run. Who would so think that would happen on the dark web? Um, look, <laughs> we've talked about the negative side of it, but there are positive sides to the dark web. Um, it does allow you know freedom of speech for people in countries where mm -hmm. that perhaps is not as we would understand it in Australia or other parts of the West. 
Um, do you think the sort of the upside of the dark web has been downplayed by the fact that we only ever hear the bad side of things? Yeah, to, to to a great extent, which is why I mean I would never argue to take down the dark web is because as bad as bad as things are, they'll they still the bad things still exist even on the clear web. It just helps yeah. them a little bit more by putting it onto the dark web. It'll still it won't get rid of it. But um, yeah, we, we look at things like the Arab Springs wouldn't really have had um, much of a choice to work without some aspects of the dark web. A lot of communication still occurred over the dark web before that. Uh, information coming out of regimes that don't uh, allow communication, particularly out of, of, say, North Korea, now Russia and, and China, that a lot of that intel we get runs through the dark web, and we, we wouldn't be able to get that securely without putting people's lives in danger uh, if they were using the clear web. Mm. So there's the we, we can talk about those dark sides of the dark web and how bad they are, and they're absolutely awful, but getting rid of the dark web is only going to make a small drop in the bucket difference. These are criminal organizations, it's big money, they find ways. And Tor isn't the only dark web. It's the biggest one. No, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, how many dark webs are there? How many worlds yeah. are there? Uh, a lot. Um, there's three big ones. Tor is the by far the largest uh, and it's the fastest and the one everybody uses. There are other ones that don't require any infrastructure at all. Um, I2P and Freenet, for instance, are the next two biggest ones. And they're run on a completely volunteer network of anybody running their software creates its own network. Uh, and that's the difference is, you know, Tor requires a rack server and a high-speed internet for people's traffic to go through. So like a backbone of the internet, really fast speed so you can take lots of users. These other ones don't. You can run it off your home computer and your own slow internet connection and have people going through that's why it's so much slower but there are other ones that are out there and they'll just they've already largely moved to there because of problems in the anonymity of tor yeah. there are serious issues in the anonymity of tor and some of them are very recent um and so they're starting to shift out there anyways and that's where a lot of the really awful stuff is is, is on those peer-to-peer -peer networks but there's anyone can create a new one at any time so with the nbn and if eventually we get more fiber rather than copper cables going to our homes, does that mean that uh, accessing the dark web is going to be a lot easier because we're going to be able to do this faster? Well, not. I mean, it won't make a difference on tour, but for for these peer to peer networks um, that exist, like Freenet, like I two P, these other these other alternative dark webs, those will probably become more popular as that occurs. Okay. Yeah, um, and we might see that shift because, like I said, there's there's anonymity issues on the dark web, uh, and the, like I said, some of them recent. So we might start seeing those kinds of shifts now to other alternative darknet sites and services. Uh, Gray Man says to lock your credit report so loans can't be taken out in your name. You have to contact three to five agencies, supply documents they require. After twenty one <laughs> days, they can give out the information again, unless you reapply with further information. Uh, Michael says, I paid my energy bill over the phone by credit card. The operator asked me for the details, including the security number on the back. Can she use my details later? Yes, she can. Uh, or anybody else who might see the note that she wrote down. And the hope is that she's just typing it into a machine um, and and doesn't remember it and just typed it in and it was a one-off. And, and, and I think majority of the time that's probably the case. But yeah, you don't. You don't ever want to give that code on the back over the phone. 
Yeah, I always wonder about that. Because they say, yeah. you know, turn it over and tell us that code. And I think, well, hang on, how safe can that be if I'm telling you what it is? Yeah, that code is supposed to be so that code is supposed to be just for kind of online usage when someone hasn't yeah. cited the card. Um and you're not supposed to it's it they're they're improperly using their machine uh, against the against uh, their their um their yeah. can you refuse to give them that number do you think yeah you can but they won't be able to run the card that way they're just kind of set up in a bad way so you'd probably have to at that point go in somewhere with it and pay it or do it online um yeah, that's all yeah, you something. don't want to give that mm. you don't want to give that out very suspicious about uh it. Yeah, and, and you know, if you're using at least an actual credit card, you might have some security if something gets stolen in that route. But if you're using, say, your your own personal bank account card, that's even more dangerous because you lose a lot of the security as a result of it. Uh, a lot of the ability to get money back. I'm guessing, so, yeah, people should not have too many credit cards then, or should they? You know, is it better to have more than you know one or two? Ah, uh, well. That's certainly a personal and financial Safer. question we want to ask in there, but uh, I don't think it makes much of a, a much of a difference other than your ability to remove, get rid of a credit card quickly kind of aspect. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think it would make much of a difference because the problem is we, we give out this information regularly. People get websites might store your credit card information when they're not supposed to, um, and then they get they get breached as well, and you have absolutely no idea, and then it's out there. Yeah. So. Of course, one way of doing that is to you know, have a bank account that you hope cannot be breached, but there's no guarantee of that. And when you need to pay a bill, just transfer the money onto a debit card. The bill is then paid, and then there's no money left on that debit card. Yes, that is a good method of doing so. Uh, there are services set up as well that allow you to do that um, for online purchases with a randomly dreaded it's essentially a randomly generated credit card number yes. at any given time. Uh, they're good services. Uh, I mean, it's it's if you're the difficulty with it is is I don't know about you, but I've got everything. I've got everything. All my bills now set up on auto detect, uh, yeah. so I don't have to deal with it every month. Uh, and so that would that would kind of break as well. Yeah, the thing about that, of course, I never do that uh, because they'll keep taking that money out long after you're dead. Uh, but of course, there are some <laughs> some yeah. organisations that insist on it. You cannot yeah. pay; uh, they will not send you a bill, and then you pay that bill. You know, I'm talking about you know Foxtel, for example. You have mm. to have that automatically deducted. Uh, it's not something that I'm in favour of. Um, Graham in Hornsby has a something I was, I was thinking about uh, earlier when you're talking about it. Uh, is there any similarity between the encryption used by, say, WhatsApp? And the ultra coding used by Germany in World War Two. I was thinking about the way you were describing those three levels of encryption that the dark web has, or that Tor uses. That uh, it was a bit like the Enigma code. That the code that goes in is not the one that comes out at the other end. Yeah, I mean, this. It's, I mean, that type of encryption. Uh, it wasn't World War Two. Wasn't really the first time, or, uh, or yeah, World War Two wasn't the first time that it was being used in there. Um, these types of encryption have been used. The Romans used encryption that was similar to this. Um, it's it's been around for a very long time. What's gotten more power? It's gotten more powerful because once you can add computing power to it, you can get much more complex with it. But the same methods have been around for millennia. Uh, it's always been important to keep information secret. You didn't want to if you got to send a message out to the battlefield. It's going to take you know three months to get there across all of Europe. Uh, you don't want anyone along the way to be able to read it. 
So these these types of encryptions have always been around. Okay. Uh, according to the FBI, there are only about 800 criminal internet forums worldwide. So their impact is large, but the number of people using them often isn't. You know, how big is the dark web? You've mentioned sort of the number of websites, I think, but just how big is it? Yeah, it's so again, these are hidden services. This this isn't the dark web itself. These are the extra websites that exist only in the dark web. Um, it, it, we can we can sit there and look at uh, the uh, tour stats and, and know that there's about 700,000 websites, but a lot of them will just be somebody's playing around, learning how to do it kind of aspects, or individual sites that they only give out to five people, right? Because if you don't have the URL, you can't access it. So law enforcement knows about 800. Those will largely be marketplaces, those 800 that they're tracking on there. Because marketplaces need to be advertised out to a very broad spectrum of people so that anyone can come there and buy stuff. So the FBI will be tracking it as well. Uh, but if you've got a much smaller group and you just want to have 20 people who you absolutely know and can you know, message separately to tell yeah. them about the website, you can keep it pretty hidden. Okay. Um, so it's, it's Yeah, so there's, I mean... It's it's large in the sense that there's a lot of existence out there, but not large in the sense of, you know, it's it's not used by anywhere near the same number of people that use the internet, obviously, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, so there's also facial recognition technology. Uh, is that something that we should be more comfortable with or less comfortable, given that, you know, deep fakes on the net uh, and people taking our information, the photos of us on the net, they could be used. Where are you or where are we with facial recognition technology and the safety of that? Yeah, well, those are, I think that uh, those are two different things, the deep fakes and the facial, facial technology, and both of them scare the heck out of me. Um, with deep fakes, the ability to, we're getting closer and closer to being able to take a, a very small sections of video of somebody and being able to create a deep fake off of them and, and fake video impersonating acting like they're, like they're them. Right now you need, you can do about a half an hour of video. You can get a pretty decent deep fake, uh, but not everyone has a half an hour of video about them scrapable off of the internet. It's getting closer though. Uh, facial recognition technology uh, really scares me. Um, so this is, there's a company, I'm forgetting the name of the company right now, but there's a company out of the US who built a facial technology software that scraped all social media websites and as much of the internet as possible to create a database of people's faces to names. And law enforcement have been buying it now for, for years, uh, but they started off with selling it to companies as well. Uh, and essentially you can take a picture of somebody and it'll go through and use AI to search through that database to find their name. And law enforcement using it as scares me for for its own reason but imagine the general public getting this um some stalker can be walking through a train and take a picture of somebody and go i want to know who that is and where they live and with a quick picture of a photo they can know everything about that person from their social media profiles but how close are uh, we to normal people doing that rather than you know cia fbi law enforcement yeah, that sort of thing it's a third it's a company that built this any company could build this uh, it exists now. All they'd have to do is just offer it to the public. Well, sell the software. Yeah, because it's it's all API, so it all runs on the internet, just like anything else. So you just upload the image to it, and it just runs on their servers. So they just have to offer it to the public. Uh, and, th and there's enough backlash on this company that that they're they're backing off and just keeping selling it to, to law enforcement. 
Um, but even then with law enforcement, it still scares me because yeah. it's, uh, it, it's not, it's not exactly foolproof uh, and it's not completely hundred percent accurate. And yet it's being used by law enforcement as if it is. Yes. So it can come back and tell you, tell you know, you take a picture of a criminal and it'll come back and, and tell you who it most likely is. Mm. But really it also is telling you who, if that person isn't in the database, it's telling you who looks the most like that person and, and who you're most likely to confuse that person for. And then law enforcement goes and kicks down their door. Uh, um, so it's problematic in that sense. And most people, not most people, a lot of people, considering how widespread Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are, they are willingly, voluntarily putting photos of themselves on the net and their children as well. Yeah. Uh, that it's all up there. It's not t- being taken from us. This is all being volunteered. <laughs> yeah, and, and, um, and people, and, and, and yet people... The same people say that they they want to be private and don't want this to occur. It's called the privacy paradox. It's the um, we we all say that we want to be private and keep the information secure, and yet we do things that break that okay. well-established phenomena. Uh, and the reality is, it makes life easier, makes our connections easier. <laughs> Part of it. Um, so people just yeah. are happy to do it. Ashley from Adelaide says, "I went on the deep web, and I think I got." to some uh, dark pla- uh, places on the dark web. The ads there offer people stolen credit card details. I didn't visit many sites. The descriptions of them before you visit them are bad enough. There are sites that offer obviously <laughs> offer drugs and weapons, but also offer extremely illegal services like where hitmen can be hired. I wish I'd never mm-hmm. seen some of the descriptive text on the dark web, some of it truly horrific, and it's hard to tell if it's fictional or not. How does somebody find that if they have to look for those specific website or domain names, uh, .onion? Yeah. So, like I said, forms, I mean, first couple things done back in there. Um, yeah, we don't know some of those, whether or not they're those descriptions that come out. Anyone can make a website, anyone can make a description. Whether or not they're real or not is always difficult to tell, but some of them certainly are. But to find those different websites, it's it's following breadcrumbs. Uh, so you can start with finding a dark website that's a, a forum board, and the forum boards will list lots of different other Onion sites. Um, there are other people who keep track of an entire list of all the ones that they found, and you can find those lists as well <laughs> once you're on the dark web. So you start with one, like a forum, a dot .onion forum website, and just find all the onions in it. And they will list the the address that uh, that. Domain yeah, yeah. sorry, the onions, meaning the, the URL addresses. Yeah. Generally but you need onions. to know them to begin with, though. Well, you need to know one. Uh, one that gets you to a forum board that lists other ones. And so, therefore, um, there so are Wikipedia. some out there. Well, really, they will have that. You can look that up just on the yeah. ordinary net. There are lots of You can find the New York Times's dot .onion website off of oh, the okay. New York Times' website. Uh, but there's also the hidden wiki, Wikipedia, that's on the dark net, and okay. that has lots of dot .onion URLs listed within oh, it. You can find the, the hidden wiki's onion address quite easily. I think it's best to stay clear of all this, though. Don't you, Jeff? Yeah, generally, if you don't know what you're doing, because it is, anytime you access any website, you are giving a lot of control over your computer to the person whose website you are accessing. And if you're hopping onto the dark net, there's a lot of criminals out there. And the probability of someone trying to attack you through your internet connection to their website rises up considerably. That's good advice. 
Jeff Foster from Macquarie University. Professor Jeff Foster, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your time this morning, especially waking up so early to answer our questions <laughs> and from well, our listeners here, as right? well. And Jeff, thank you so much and have a great weekend. Thank you. You as well. That is Professor Jeff Foster from Macquarie University. What a what a really fascinating topic. And that was another podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Thanks for listening.